from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, August 21st. I'm Marco Werman. Uncertainty for Ethiopia after the death of leader Meles Zenawi. This author met Zenawi as a young man in medical school. He has some regrets about giving up medicine, and yet it seemed like a moment in time when the will of the people needed to be exercised, and he was willing to give his life for that cause. And later, U.S. options after President Obama's warning on Syria's chemical weapons. Certainly the president did not make that statement without some sort of orders going out to the Joint Chiefs to prepare the ground. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Horn of Africa is a region known for instability. Think of Somalia with its weak government, warlords, and al-Qaeda-linked militant groups. Amid that chaos, one source of stability for the region was the longtime ruler of Ethiopia, Meles Zenawi. He fought his way to power in the early 1990s and became a key U.S. ally. But today, Ethiopia is facing an uncertain future after the announcement that Prime Minister Zenawi died at a hospital in Belgium. He was 57 years old. Zenawi's coffin was flown back to Ethiopia today. Author and physician Abraham Verghese grew up near the country's capital, Addis Ababa. He and Zenawi were medical students there when Emperor Haile Selassie was ousted in a coup in 1974. He and I were in the same medical school. He was one year junior to me. I think we all fully intended to finish, but then when the emperor was overthrown, the military government uh, immediately closed down the university for a year, sent the students to the countryside, because I think they were worried about the intelligentsia represented by students like Mellis. Uh, he was a dynamic and impassioned student leader. And so they sent everyone back to the countryside movement, educate the masses, and many of my classmates, including Mellis, decided to become guerrilla fighters and fight against this military government. And when I interviewed him many years later, he said he had some regrets about giving up medicine, and yet it seemed like a moment in time when the will of the people needed to be exercised, and he was willing to give his life for that cause. So you knew him in medical school? He was a year junior to me. I, I don't uh, claim to have known him very well, but I distinctly remember how he stood out from all his colleagues for two reasons. One, he was a very impassioned student leader. I remember a classmate of mine attended a class that Mellis's class had boycotted because it was a student protest day. And when he attended that class, they came and got him and took him to a room and didn't beat him up, but essentially, you know, read him the riot act. And mm. it was very much Mellis behind that. I also remember him for being an absolutely brilliant student. His capacity to memorize, you know, the huge amounts of text that we had to memorize in those days uh, was, was astonishing. And he got four A's in anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, and biochemistry, which had been unheard of. It was a very high standard to reach. So he stood out 
both intellectually and by the nature of his passion for what he believed in. So after Mela Zanawi dropped out of medical school uh, and joined uh, the, this rebel army, decades of bloodshed followed. And in 91, Zanawi's Liberation Army triumphed. What were Ethiopians' hopes for him at that moment in time? There were great hopes, many of which he fulfilled, that he would lead the country into a new era. He was incredibly articulate. He was a self-taught economist and a self-taught management guru. I think he'd actually taken degrees, um, correspondence degrees in these areas. And there was a sense that uh, he was the perfect new leader for this country. And he certainly did a lot of great things to bring the country together, move it forward economically. But I think as is always a danger when you have had such success and you believe you have a vision for the country, I think he was reluctant to let go of power. And I think his biggest criticism is that he hung on and, uh, you know, stifled the opposition, snuffed out political criticism, and he imprisoned journalists. Is there a way that uh, you will remember Mela Zanawi from those years in medical school that, that the rest of us might never occur to us? I think my strongest memory will actually be not from medical school, but when I went to interview him in, in 98, and, you know, our lives had diverged dramatically. Here he was, uh, you know, being a guerrilla fighter in the field and wound up being prime minister of the country, and my trajectory had gone another way, and I was a professor of medicine uh, in America. And here we were meeting after 20-something years. And I remember thinking that whatever I, I mean, whatever I was willing to die for, I would be willing to die for my kids and, you know, for, my, for the things I believe in. But he had really been willing to die for this cause in a way that was so impressive. And I remember asking him his most important memory of the long struggle was. And he said, you know, I always remember the peasants that I fought with and how every now and then we'd come to these minefields that were mined with Cuban mines and Soviet mines and we needed to have one volunteer walk through the minefield and find a path for the troops to to cut through. And he says, every decision I make, I try to make sure it lives up to the peasants who sacrificed their lives finding us a path through that minefield. What do you think his loss will mean for Ethiopia and the region? My great fear is that the country might descend into anarchy. That would be the worst-case scenario. You have to remember that you know, every border of Ethiopia, with, ex- with the exception perhaps of Kenya, represents a potential enemy. You have Somalia on one side, and they have no love for, for Ethiopia. You have Sudan and South Sudan. Other than Kenya, I think that there are potential threats on every border, and all those leaders are sort of trying to figure out what this means and whether they can take some advantage, I suspect. Given your concerns for the future of Ethiopia, is there a moment right now, do you think, where some of the dissent that uh, Melisanawi would not allow in Ethiopia, some of the, the journalism and media that people wanted to practice that he wouldn't allow, is there a moment where that can now start to bloom, do you think? It won't bloom very easily because, you know, he was, after all, just one man sitting in his office. His, his enforcement was these very committed colleagues of his who enforced the, you know, imprisoning of the two Swedish journalists, the uh, imprisoning and shutting down of many, many newspapers. I suspect that that will continue, but I have a feeling that his death is going to give a lot of energy to the opposition, and, and they will perhaps try again, either in a democratic, political, legitimate way, or perhaps in an armed struggle. That is my great fear. Author and physician Abraham Verghese, he's a professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. His most recent book is Cutting for Stone. 
The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been sending missionaries to Chile for more than 50 years, and since that time, the number of Mormons in Chile has grown and grown. But just like in the global economy, growth is hard to come by these days. The world's Alex Galifant has a second of our stories on Mormons abroad. There are 176 missionaries based in the Santiago East Mission. Jenny, Most of them are young men, 20 or 21 years old. About half are from the United States. Like Mormon missionaries all over the world, they stop passers-by on the street for a chat. Do you have two minutes? Would you like to attend a meeting at our church? Elder Brian Walker is from Las Vegas. Growing the church is a step-by-step thing, he says. We have certain numbers, certain statistics that we try to try to reach. We set goals every week. But when Elder Walker puts it that way, one of his fellow missionaries is quick to clarify. It's never about the numbers. It's always about helping people. This is Elder Alex Danes. He's from Logan, Utah, a town founded by Mormon settlers midway through the 19th century. We take those numbers to track our progress, but it's always focused on the people. Our, our church is always focused on real growth, people who truly become converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not, a, not just another number to add to the book. They, they don't want to come across as being somewhat shallow about the numbers, I guess, right, that it's just about growth. Ryan Cragen is a sociologist of religion at the University of Tampa. He used to be a member of the Mormon Church. And he says while Mormons' interest in helping people is genuine, the reporting of growth, literally counting the converts, is key. Because they're exclusivists, because they believe they do have the one and only true church on the planet, they have to see growth. In fact, the main church website reports a global tally of Mormon membership. As of last December, it stood at 14,441,346. And in Chile, I asked Elder Kent Richards, a retired trauma surgeon from Utah. Until recently, he was one of the three most senior Mormons in the country. We have about 570,000 members now in Chile. That's more than 3% of a population that's overwhelmingly Catholic. But few Catholics here attend church on a regular basis. And Richards admits that's a problem for Mormons, too. Uh, We have about 55,000 or so who attend every week on an average. That means fewer than 10% of Mormon converts in Chile are active in the church. So why is a religion that in the 1980s was considered by some to be the fastest growing in the world having such a tough time retaining, let alone building, its membership? Kent Richards puts it down to growing pains. There was a lot of enthusiasm for the rapid growth of the church, but it was also very immature. For instance, in Chile and other places, baptism into the church was often quick and easy. It didn't take much to become a Mormon. Ryan Cragen, the sociologist, served as a missionary in Costa Rica in the late 1990s. We were encouraged to commit people to get baptized during our very first discussion with them. That is not a very effective way to retain members. All the Mormon leaders I spoke with wanted to emphasize that rapid-fire baptisms had never been official church policy. In any case, today their focus is on building a better convert. Wilton Santana directs commercials for Chilean TV. He's 37 and a recent convert to Mormonism. Santana says his first two months were spent studying the Book of Mormon. 
He was asked to attend a number of meetings and prayer sessions like this one, studying scriptures with missionaries. Only then was he invited to be baptized. The idea is that process produces a deeper commitment to the Mormon Church. But for sociologists like Ryan Cragen, the challenge to the Mormon Church is deeper than addressing issues of personal commitment. The first formal Mormon mission in Chile was established in 1961. It was here in Santiago, a city that was beginning to undergo rapid expansion. More and more Chileans left behind rural communities in search of opportunity. Cragen says these two things, a proselytizing religion and a newly urbanized population, often go hand in hand. The demand comes because people feel a sense of chaos and disconnectedness. These religions step in, offer to address those two major concerns right at the time when people need it, but over time that demand declines because people adjust to life in modernized societies. And that, says Cragen, is what's happened in Chile. People don't feel like they need the Mormon church, or any church, as much as they once did. Almost a third of all Chileans now make their home in the Santiago area, some five million people. And taken as a whole, they're doing well. Chile's economy is growing steadily. So the Mormon mission here has had to adapt. Elder Kent Richard says the missionaries split their time these days. They still look for new members, but since those are harder to come by, they're paying at least as much attention to lost Mormons. The missionaries spend a good portion of their time finding them and reactivating them and teaching them as though they were almost new members. You can't grow a church on a shaky foundation. Mormon missions in Chile are working to solidify what's still there. It's about bringing members back into the church. It's about those more substantive baptisms. And it's about further deepening the commitment of local converts. Wilton Santana, the TV director, is now being trained for a junior role in the Mormon priesthood. For The World, I'm Alex Galafent, Santiago, Chile. Alex has a video of missionaries in their Santiago apartment talking about getting care packages from home. It's at theworld.org. Tomorrow on The World, the Mormon Church and Poland's archives. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The headline from Syria today is familiar. Shelling continues and the conflict grows. But there are key developments to report as well. Russia today warned against any foreign power taking unilateral action in Syria. The comment by the Russian foreign minister is seen as a direct response to what President Obama said yesterday. Obama threatened enormous consequences if Syrian President Bashar al-Assad used chemical or biological weapons or even moved them in a menacing way. On the ground, Syria's biggest city, Aleppo, is now fully engulfed in the conflict between regime forces and rebels. A Japanese journalist was killed in the city yesterday amid the growing violence. Martin Chulov with Britain's Guardian newspaper is just outside Aleppo. Martin, you've just spent almost a week inside the city. What's going on there? What's the scene? Very intensive fighting in Aleppo, as you say, certainly in the southwest of the city where the clashes have been relentless for the best part of five days now. Jets bombing from above, the tanks shelling from afar, 
and in the suburb of Salah Adin, which was the rebel stronghold, it is now occupied by regime forces who are trying to inch forward into neighboring areas. Uh, there's a, a very deadly, very lethal two-way fight, often room-to-room or building-to-building taking place there. Uh, in the rest of the city, sporadic shelling, an eerie sort of emptiness, a, a deep sense of foreboding, certainly in the eastern part where the rebels ostensibly control most of that section of the city. Very few shops open, very few people around, and uh, a state of full siege in Aleppo. In military terms, Martin, are, are you able to get a sense of what's happening? Who's on the offensive? Who's on the defensive? Well, it's, it's variable. Uh, the regime clearly has the upper hand as long as it controls the skies, and it does. It has been deploying its air force extensively. Uh, Syrian air force jets are bombing key strategic targets, particularly FSA headquarters and bases, and uh, parts of the city where the fighting is, is taking place. And they have changed the dynamic, especially in Salah Eddin, which, as I said, was the rebel Alamo. The, the jets that were striking from above proved um, too overwhelming for the rebels down below to sustain. They did withdraw, and regime forces eventually did move in. Now, you met some foreign jihadis there in Aleppo, uh, Martin. How many are there, and where are they from? Well, the foreign jihadists we saw yesterday had just arrived at the front line. Uh, there, were, there were four of them who had just arrived. We are told uh, very reliably by, by them and by others that um, there are about 30 foreign jihadists who have made their way into the heart of Saladin. Uh, elsewhere in Syria, we are told reliably, and we have also seen some jihadists uh, elsewhere who have made it to towns and villages near Aleppo and Idlib and haven't yet come into the city itself. I think a, a reasonable estimate of the numbers of them would be around about 200 uh, they are trying to attach themselves to rebel units. Um, one one jihadist unit is trying to set up its own leadership structure. But they're coming from everywhere. Uh, there's an Algerian we saw yesterday, a Saudi, a Pakistani, a Senegalese. There are a couple of Chechens around, some Libyans. Mm. Basically, the Islamic diaspora, they are starting to turn up, and it, it has been that way for the past month to five weeks. Experienced fighters? The guys we saw yesterday said that they had fought in Iraq. Um, some of them are young. Um, some of them uh, haven't fought, but uh, they, they seem determined to make this a place where they make a stand for uh, their definition of jihad. Um, you know, um, there have been lots of yeah. warnings, Martin, about foreign intervention in Syria, that it, that it might cause the conflict to spill into the wider region. What did the people in Aleppo tell you about foreign intervention? Are they for it or against it? Well, they're certainly for getting the jets out of the sky. I mean, universally, amongst the rebel supporters, they do want a no-fly zone. And they don't care who enforces it or how, how it's enforced, but they, they seem to realize that while these MiGs are up there bombing them, they cannot win this uh, this war. So they'd be very, very uh, enthusiastic about uh, any, any development there. At the same time, they realize that um, it's, it's very difficult for uh, an American president to do with an election a few months away. They think that uh, perhaps after November there may be a change in thinking. Uh, in terms of uh, the support, the foreign support, we do hear a lot uh, in, in recent days from people who say that if the West aren't going to help us, then the Islamic groups will, and we will welcome their support, even given the difficulties that this poses. As we know, it potentially changes the dynamic. Um, they, they're aware of that too, but they say that we do need some support and we're prepared to turn to these guys if nothing is coming from the West. 
Martin Chulov, reporter with Britain's Guardian newspaper, speaking with us from just outside Aleppo, Syria. Martin, thank you very much. Take care. You're welcome. So nothing coming from the West, according to the Syrian rebels, but that could change. Earlier, we mentioned President Obama's warning yesterday regarding the possible use by Syria of chemical weapons. Here's what the president told reporters. We have communicated in no uncertain terms with every player in the region that that's a red line for us and that there would be enormous consequences if we start seeing movement on the chemical weapons front. George Friedman is CEO of Stratfor, a global intelligence company in Austin, Texas. George, President Obama said this is a red line which would force him to reevaluate the use of military force. What, practically speaking, do you think Syria would have to do with these chemical weapons to make the president rethink military force? I think two things. One, using them internally on their opposition, obviously. But I think one of the real fears of the administration is the transfer of these weapons to Hezbollah or other non-government actors in Lebanon or possibly in Iraq. That would be a huge threat. So any sign that they are moving in that direction would probably lead to an intervention. If, and I I do say if here, if the United States uh, would contemplate some kind of military action, uh, they'd need to achieve air superiority, presumably. Uh, That would require a pretty intensive assault on, on Syria's air defenses, wouldn't it? Well, yes. I mean, it would be called a CIA attack, a suppression of any air defenses. Uh, They have some substantial ones. This would take a few days. After that, the decision really has to be made, which is the more important one, is can these depots be taken out from the air without, you know, cooking off some of the weapons so that they spew chemicals all over the place? Do we have to go in on the ground? And there's the real problem. It's not clear that you can take these out from the air. It's not clear that airstrikes alone is going to do the trick. You may have to have an air land situation, which will take some time to mount, which isn't going to be easy in a country like Syria. This is not uh, Libya. And uh, there's a lot of danger in that. So he's trying to tell them this is going to happen. He's also saying to them that if this starts happening, it's going to happen fast and it's going to happen early because we really can't take the chance of this going a long time. I mean, it seems impossible to imagine, but but could the U.S. tomorrow uh, do this, if so motivated? Tomorrow, probably not. But I will assume that during this crisis, U.S. assets have been moved into position. Certainly, the president did not make that statement without some sort of orders going out to the Joint Chiefs to prepare the ground Mm. for an intervention if it comes. The problem is that if this does happen, doing it with the diplomatic niceties is not going to be easy. George Friedman, CEO of Stratfor, a global intelligence company. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Still to come, bad news about Arctic sea ice. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a former British champion on what it's like to be a woman golfer in the UK. When I first joined the Professional Golfers Association, their rules said that lady members shall have the same rights as men, save that they may not attend meetings, play in tournaments, or vote. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. 
Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There's a striking new map up on the website of the National Snow and Ice Data Center today. I'm looking at it right now, and you can too at theworld.org. The map shows a blob of white surrounded by a sea of blue ringed by an orange line. The white blob represents the size of the Arctic ice cap as of yesterday. The orange line shows the median size of that same ice cap on the same date from 1979 to 2000. And the blue in between is the difference, where the ice cap has been replaced by an area of open ocean bigger than Alaska, Texas, and California combined. It's a snapshot of how quickly things are changing in the Arctic, and in particular how much ice has been lost this year. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, is in the studio with me. Peter, experts are describing what's going on in the Arctic uh, this year as unprecedented and record-breaking. What's going on? Well, like you said, it's really striking, Marco. The ice cover as of yesterday is more than 30% smaller than that late 20th century average for the same date. It's almost 10% below the previous record low for the date set back in 2007, and it's likely headed for an all-time record low this year, at least a record as long as we've been keeping records. As for what's going on, in two simple words, it's global warming. Scientists say there's just no doubt about it. Mm. I mean, they've, they've run all kinds of computer models looking at every conceivable factor, and nothing explains this rapid disappearance of summer ice in the Arctic other than the rise in global temperatures due to carbon dioxide pollution in the atmosphere. So we've been hearing a lot about rising sea levels due to global warming. Is all this melting ice going to contribute to that? Well, actually, it's it's not. I mean, at least not directly. The Arctic ice cap is different from most of the ice in Antarctica and Greenland in that it's already floating, which means that when it melts, it doesn't have much effect on overall sea levels. But what's got scientists concerned is that it does have really important indirect impacts on sea levels. The big thing is what they're calling the albedo effect, which is another way of saying how much solar radiation the ice and water reflect or absorb. And the difference is striking. It turns out that in the Arctic, ice reflects about 80% of solar radiation, but the dark ocean water absorbs 90% of it. Mm. So instead of sending all that heat back into space, the open ocean where the ice used to be is absorbing it and warming up. And that can affect sea levels in a number of important ways. As the water warms up, it expands and will have a modest impact on sea levels. And then over time, the water transfers some of its heat to the atmosphere. That warms up the air. That can help melt ice in places like Greenland. And then there's the growing likelihood that the warmer seawater is essentially helping to melt Greenland's glaciers from below, which is turning up the speed of the flow of ice into the sea. And that also raises sea levels. So what about life in the Arctic? How is this ice loss affecting people and, uh, you know, wildlife up there? Well, one of the most immediate impacts, Marco, is on creatures that depend on the ice for hunting, which includes both polar bears and people. And that changing albedo effect that I mentioned is also helping to warm up the air there, which in turn is causing permafrost to thaw out. That leads to all kinds of problems for local ecosystems and human communities. But it's important to remember that Arctic communities aren't the only ones who will be affected by this. Some scientists refer to the Arctic as the world's refrigerator. And as it warms up, that's going to affect weather all around the world. In fact, Marco, there's already some evidence that changes in the Arctic could be affecting weather today, this summer, including Mm. perhaps the big drought and uh, record heat we've been having here in the U.S. Of course, the whole system is extremely complex. It's hard to draw a direct connection, but it does seem likely that what's going on up there is affecting what we're experiencing down here. 
Now, the last big U.N. report on climate change back in 2007 predicted we'd see an entirely ice-free Arctic some summer by around the year 2100. So take this news of ice melt today and put that in context of those predictions. Well, uh, it's changed a lot. Um, After that record warm summer of 2007, scientists moved that estimate up to somewhere between 2030 and 2040. There's no consensus estimate now, but one scientist at a major British polar research center told our colleagues at the BBC last week that he thinks we may see at least our first ice-free summer day in the Arctic by the end of this decade, 80 years sooner than we thought just a few years ago. Extraordinary. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, thanks so much. Thanks, Marco. Yesterday's announcement by the Augusta National Golf Club in Georgia is still making waves around the globe. Augusta, which hosts the Masters Tournament each year, has been a boys' club for 80 years, no women allowed. But now the club has welcomed its first two female members, including former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Vivian Saunders is a former women's British Open champ and was the first European to get a player's card in the LPGA in America. She also holds degrees in psychology, business, and law. Vivian, simple question to start off. What's your reaction to Augusta National's decision to admit women? I think it's fantastic. I'm really uh, pleased about it. I think they've sent out absolutely the right message. And uh, the talk here among not just the women golfers, but the men golfers, um, I think they're relieved to see this has happened. Now, in Britain, golf's governing body is known as the Royal and Ancient, and you've pushed Royal and Ancient on these issues. Where do things stand in Britain as far as women being admitted to famous golf clubs? Do you know, next year, the Open Championship is at Muirfield, and that is a men's only club. Uh, and I think it's making golf really the laughing stock of, of, uh, of sport. Do you think uh, Augusta's decision will cause clubs like Muirfield in Scotland uh, to rethink their, their rules? I certainly think it'll make the Royal and Ancient rethink the rules uh, because they hold the Open, the open Championships Then they are the governing body. Uh, somewhere like Muirfield, they are a private club. They are entitled to their own views. Uh, they hold the Open Championship, let's say, once every seven years. But I think it's just very, very old-fashioned. Have you ever experienced any sex discrimination at golf courses in Britain? Oh, completely. I mean, completely. I went to one club, and uh, we could only go out and play if we were accompanied by a man. And um, they eventually decided that we could go out, to the two women, that we could go out and play as long as we'd got a caddy with us. Mm. Um, I mean, it was just, it, just ridiculous. I was also, when I first joined the Professional Golfers Association, their rules said that lady members shall have the same rights as men, save that they may not attend meetings, play in tournaments, or vote. When I was at university in London, I was at a club called Hampstead in, in the middle of London, yeah. and women couldn't play until after four o'clock on a Saturday. Well, I mean, that didn't do us much good in November and December. Ro- the Royal and Ancient, is that associated with the Crown in England? Well, no, it's not, it's not really. But what happens is over the years, they give royal patronage to various clubs. So I mean, there, are, there are royal clubs, Royal Wimbledon, they are ones where the royal family have had um, sort of uh, possibly links to them and they've therefore made them royal. And that's why the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews was obviously given this royal patronage. But that's what I think a lot of us object to. How it, it is insulting to the Queen. She's been on the throne for 60 years, the most marvellous monarch. They want the royal status, but they don't want women. And that's what I think is so, uh, so bad with them. Doesn't Queen Elizabeth II have some say in this? 
Well, she she never gets involved with politics, quite right, quite rightly too. Um, you know, she she wouldn't say anything. But you see, the younger generation, by the time they get down, the Prince Charles, and then of course we've got Prince William, who is now the Duke of Cambridge, and his his wife Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge. They both went to St Andrews University. Um, I think there's going to be a point at which the royal and ancient will accept women. I think they will invite women. And I think, rather unlike Augusta, they will probably go for leading amateur women golfers. And I think it will be people who are very much at the forefront of golf rather than the the decision of Augusta, which is obviously taking somebody from politics and obviously Darla Moore with her you know, expertise and the fame in banking and so on. You know, just a few years ago, Wimbledon offered smaller purses for female tennis champions than men. Yes. What was the pressure that changed those rules? I think that must have been from the Women's Tennis uh, Association. I'm not, I'm not sure that I agree with some of those things because I think women have a real struggle to get uh, professional sport. And I think, you know, we do have to tread carefully. I mean, the prize money for the Women's Open Championship in Britain is a lot less than it is for the men, but it, it's it's creeping up. It, it's going up. I think if we demand too much in terms of equal prize money for things, I think it could actually work against women. Former British Open golf champ Vivian Saunders, thank you so much. Thank you. Belgian-born photographer Martine Franck wasn't in search of prize money. She just wanted to take photographs, and that's what she spent much of her life doing. Martine Franck died last week in Paris at the age of 74. She was a member of the agency Magnum Photos. The French Minister of Culture paid tribute to Franck, saying her vision of the world was beautiful and clear-sighted, that of a witness and artist. Franck met Magnum Photo's co-founder and renowned photojournalist Henri Cartier-Bresson in 1965 through a mutual friend. Talking with host Charlie Rose in 2010, she said Cartier-Bresson had quite a pickup line. His opening line was, Martine, I want to come and see your contact sheets. (laughs) (laughs) A photography reference there that may be lost on some who've never shot film. Franck and Cartier-Bresson were married for 33 years until Cartier-Bresson's death in 2004. Franck spoke with us in 2007 when an exhibit on her husband's work was presented at the International Institute of Photography in New York. She said when she met Cartier-Bresson, 30 years her senior, she was intimidated by his talent and stature and considered changing her job. I must say I also decided not to take any more photographs at that period. I started making films because I thought that living with such a famous photographer would be impossible to continue taking photographs. But in fact, little by little, I realized... Why not? I can go my way. There's no reason why I shouldn't. And he encouraged me very much to to keep on photographing, which I did. I mean, obviously, he had great influence on on my work. But he taught me to say no, to say no to certain assignments, to to stand up for what I believed in, to try and do my best. Susan Micellis is a Magnum photographer and knew Martine Franck well. She told me that Cartier-Bresson and Franck had a lot of respect for each other. Between lovers or husband and wife or colleagues, I think that respect is the key value to support someone's vision. So, as she said, she stood up for what she believed in and tried to do her best. What kind of places and subjects was Martine Franck drawn to? What I see in her work is a love of people. Very often, you know, she photographed artists. She worked with theater. She had a whole love for the individual. And I also think landscape. And those were the two that I associate moments with her, stunning landscapes, a lot of solitude in the landscape, strong, formal quality, an elegant eye. 
And I think when she was with people, they were much more interactive. There's a warmth to the portraiture. Well, let's talk about a few of her photographs, uh, people on landscapes. There's one that I know is your, one of your favorites by Martine Franck. It's a modern-looking poolside in Provence in France where people are kind of just stretched out in hammocks from 1976. Describe that picture. Well, in a funny way, we were just talking about people and then in contrast landscapes and this one photograph where she integrates them so beautifully. Mm. I mean, these people suspended in, in hammocks, almost floating. It's kind of surreal, this picture. Yeah. The bodies, the shape of the bodies are angular, the curves. What I love is the shadow of the body under the hammock. It's a moment that's still, and yet you could imagine being there. And then 20 years later, a different tonal range, a much more organic photo of two Buddhist monks at a monastery. That's also very strong and in a different way. Yeah, I think what's lovely about that image is their relationship and the pigeon on the man's head and this, the delight. Right, and so there's an old monk with a pigeon on his head and a young child kind of smiling at him, right? Yes, there seems to be a moment of surprise. Martine Franck has been described as a kind-hearted lady, very modest and involved uh, in several humanitarian causes, it should be noted. What was she like for you, Susan, as a friend and colleague? Well, I think anyone would say generous. She had a sense of time. When she was with you, she was really with you. She also had a sense of time and the, the value of what we do and for time to come. You know, I think when she worked terribly hard to build the HCB Foundation in Paris. And Henri Cartier-Bresson Foundation, right. Yes, yeah. the Henri Cartier-Bresson Foundation. And then she and I have been working closely over the last few years to build a Magnum Foundation, which would be a larger extended history of the 65 years of Magnum going forward. So she had a sense of time and the value of what we see in a moment of time and then we can value over time. Magnum Photos member Susan Maselis telling us about the late Martine Franck. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. You can see a slideshow of some of Martine Franck's more captivating photos from the monastery in Nepal to a carnival in Basel, Switzerland, all at theworld.org. We're staying on French soil for today's GeoQuiz as we track down a popular tourist destination off the coast of Normandy. It's said to be the second most visited site in France. People come to see the towering Benedictine Abbey and Steeple Church. It's a rocky island connected to the mainland by a causeway, and French authorities want to make sure this UNESCO site remains an island. So a massive restoration effort is underway, and not without controversy. Many have been grumbling about the project. Visitors have been banned from parking on the mud flats when the tide is low. They have to take shuttle buses from a remote parking lot. We'll hear more about the tourist woes in a minute, but first, can you name this rock of an island? Coming up, yodeling like you've never heard it before. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. And by the investment firm of Raymond James, Wealth Management, Bank and Capital Markets. Details on finding a local advisor at lifewellplanned.com. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In a moment, we'll head to Berlin, but first we owe you the answer to our geo-quiz. We were looking for a tiny island off the Normandy coast in France, and the answer is Mont Saint-Michel. And Mont Saint-Michel is in the midst of a multi-year restoration project. But as the BBC's Christian Fraser reports, that's creating some new problems. For 1,300 years, Mont Saint-Michel has been a symbol of national resistance, a focus of deep reverence and spirituality. In medieval times, the abbey was defended by the fast-moving currents and the gallant knights who stood in the face of overwhelming odds. During the Hundred Years' War, it was the only part of Normandy that resisted the English armies. But today, the ramparts are open. It's the second most visited site in France, and it's getting a facelift. François-Xavier de Bolincourt is the head of the Restoration Committee, a man with a name befitting of such a huge undertaking. Since the late 19th century and the building of a causeway that links Saint-Michel with the mainland, the rock has been surrounded by vast deposits of silt. Three years ago, François and his team built a dam that at high tide stores water upstream and at low tide flushes it out, carrying the silt with it. In less than three years, the area of the bay covered by the sea at high tide has increased by 50 hectares. We want to see to it that Mont Saint-Michel is completely surrounded by water with every tide. There have been fears that by 2050, Mont Saint-Michel would cease to be an island. The dam has been a triumph. If only the move to reorganise the tourist route had been as successful. Since the spring, cars and buses have been banned from the mudflats at the foot of Saint-Michel and directed instead to this sprawling new car park where they're charged the princely sum of €8. But then, on foot, they must walk another 800 metres to catch the shuttle bus. And it is quite a walk. It takes you a good half hour to get to the site. And on the day we visited, it was raining. Geraldine Fagueridel runs a gift shop on the island and she is incandescent. Since the spring, when the changes were brought in, she has lost 30% of her trade. Since the end of April, we've been restricted to working as an amusement park. Entrance barriers have been put in place and access is monitored 24 hours a day. This project has cost us a lot of our freedom. Joining the throngs of the disgruntled is UNESCO. Recently it threatened to suspend Mont Saint-Michel's precious world heritage status, concerned by both the proximity of a wind farm and an ugly landing stage that was planned for emergency services. Compromise has been found and the threat is on hold for the moment. In antiquity, the rock was besieged by the English army. Today, it is controversy that surrounds the island. Aesthetics versus profit. That was the BBC's Christian Fraser visiting Mont Saint-Michel, the answer to our geo-quiz today. Finally today, how to make yodeling hip. Seriously. Reporter E. Okobi tells us about a Berlin-based singer who gives this traditional art form some versatility. For Doreen Kutzka. Yodeling is a way of life. I started yodeling with six years. There was a woman in my village, and uh, she gave yodeling lessons for kids. And I said, oh, wow, 
Kutzke began performing as a kid in the small East German town where she was raised. At one point, she was even featured yodeling on TV in a dirndl. As she got older, Kutzke found yodeling a little bit embarrassing, so she stopped for a while. She rediscovered yodeling in her 20s after moving to Berlin, where she tended bar and DJed at clubs. I was behind the DJ pulled and just covered from the from the rest and start uh, yodeling just to check it out. Do the people recognize that? And um, it was fun. Kutzke started a band with Uta Waldhausen. The two were from different towns but met as teenagers at punk rock parties. Waldhausen says both moved to Berlin around the same time and kept in touch. One day Doreen came to me and told me that she told somebody uh, she has a band and she and uh, he was kind of, oh, okay, cool, then uh, do you like to play next week? Of course it was a lie. <laughs> and, and then we just uh, practiced for two weeks for our first concert. And Parabells was born. The women have performed together since 1999. Kutzke has also collaborated with a wide variety of Berlin-based artists. She's merged yodeling with everything from performance art to dubstep to classic American country music. I was dancing with my darling to the Tennessee walls when an old friend had happened to This is Kutzka's version of Tennessee Waltz done by her group Kutzkalina and the Devil's Harmonica, a collaboration between Kutzka and British-born performer Malcolm Arison. Arison introduced Kutzka to country music. I was pleased to hear a kind of music which is so pure and with so nice lyrics as well. And, of course, I enjoyed the yodeling in it. And Kutzka wants others to enjoy yodeling, too. She runs yodeling workshops from a hair salon in the Turkish enclave of Kreuzberg. I thought it was a really nice idea in the barbershop. It doesn't look like a barbershop. And it's a very, very nice room. And in wintertime, you have an oven in the corner. And it's cozy and nice there. The quirky workshops have garnered Kutzka international attention. They also supplement earnings from concerts and tours that don't always pay so well. In addition to her performances and various collaborations, Kutzka directs a woman's choir that rehearses every week at a friend's cafe in the trendy neighborhood of Mitte. Germany subsidizes many artists like Kutzka. But as the cost of living creeps up in Berlin... She worries that unconventional and experimental artistic careers like hers will soon be a thing of the past. For the world, I'm E. Okobi, Berlin. I'm not even going to try yodeling. 
But you can watch Doreen Cooksta yodel the country classic Tennessee waltz at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.